This is AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, general article reviews, and innovation in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for AMDA On The Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to AMDA On The Go. This podcast looks at the intersection of health policy and the post-acute and long-term care environment in the setting of the COVID-19 pandemic. In a recent New York Times article entitled, Turning Away from Nursing Homes to What? Writer Mark Miller discusses the trauma of COVID-19 and the building skepticism about institutional care settings with demand for nursing facilities declining during the pandemic. The crux of the article was that communities needed to become more age-friendly and healthcare at home needed to become a focus. As the Biden infrastructure plan includes hundreds of billions of dollars to bolster long-term care outside of institutional settings, what does that mean for skilled nursing? Should the skilled nursing facility or SNF be abandoned? Can it be abandoned? Well, I think as someone dedicated to the care of patients and residents in skilled nursing facilities, the answer to both those questions by me is no, but gut feeling from a clinician is not enough. We need to hear from experts who have studied the issues around the regulatory environment and the realities of nursing home care and need and understand how issues and policy merge. And fortunately, we have one of those experts here with us now, Dr. David Grabowski, whose voice and advocacy for skilled nursing facility care has been prominent and unrelenting during this pandemic for the benefit of us all. Dr. Grabowski is a professor of healthcare policy in the Department of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School. His research examines the economics of aging with a particular interest in the areas of long-term care and post-acute care. He has served on the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, Coronavirus Commission, and he is a current member of the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, or MedPAC. Dr. Grabowski, what a pleasure to welcome you to AMDA On The Go. Great. Thank you so much, Wayne, for having me on. Dr. Grabowski, I typically like to start with somewhat of a historical framework to set the tone for our discussion. In a November 2020 McKnight's long-term care news article on steps that could strengthen United States nursing homes in the post-pandemic world, you were interviewed and quoted as saying, COVID-19 has revealed the fragility of nursing homes' business model and our underinvestment in high-quality long-term care. I guess that any understanding of where we are today starts with really how we how we got here in the first place. You know, OBRA 87 was supposed to help long-term care residents quote attain and maintain their highest practicable physical, mental, and psychosocial well-being. You know, a, a, a number of questions to start off. What has happened over the past nearly 35 years that allowed this environment to become so burdened with sadness and desolation from this pandemic? Was the pandemic just a perfect storm? 
did skilled nursing facility administrators, directors of nursing, medical directors just lose focus? Did the government create barriers to success? All the above, something else. Help us understand this evolution to today. Sure. So I, I love this question. Let's start at the start. How, how did we get here? And you're exactly right. We, we've, we've come a long way, I think, with, with nursing homes. But as I suggested in that quote, we also have a, have a long way to go uh, still. And I think the pandemic has helped to illustrate that. So, you know, we really didn't have a, a, a nursing home sector. I'm going to really go back to the start here, Wayne. Sure, uh, sure. Prior to sort of Medicare and Medicaid in the in the early 60s. Uh, but it, it was really the, the, the formation of uh, those programs that that led to what we today know as a as a nursing home. And we saw tremendous construction uh, starting in the late 60s into the into the 1970s of, of nursing homes. That we that we still have in operation today, and I'm I'm going to come back to that point because that's been uh, a big part of the problem during the the pandemic. We saw this huge kind of growth in the number of buildings, uh, but a number of care problems began to uh, also emerge, and I think a lot of this was how we actually set up the payment. And so students ask me all the time, why do we fund all of our healthcare through Medicare, and then we have over here on the other side, long-term care and nursing home services in particular, funded by Medicaid. And it was a bit of an historical accident going back to the start of the program. And so in those early years, um, Medicaid was really the, the only public payer, the only, only game in town, along with some, some individuals paying out of pocket. There was actually a lot of private pay back then. There wasn't a lot of assisted living uh, that, that was in the market. So individuals either, you know, it was Medicaid or private, uh, in, in the early 80s, as hospitals changed how they paid for, uh, uh, you know, care moving from a cost-based system to the, the system we have today, the, the diagnosis-related groups or DRG-based system, hospitals had this incentive to discharge quicker and sicker. So sure enough, they, th those individuals needed to be discharged somewhere. And by the 90s, we saw this huge explosion in post-acute care, uh, which today obviously is, is a really important payer. So now we have Medicare, Medicaid, and this declining share of, of, of private pay. Uh, given that Medicaid has been this, this dominant payer uh, going on decades, that's created a lot of, lot of issues. And you mentioned, and I'm really glad, Wayne, that you, you flagged uh, OBRA 87. That was a really important piece of legislation. Um, implemented in 1990, the Nursing Home Reform Act uh, completely changed how we regulate U.S. nursing homes. It really, I think, has had a, had a positive impact. Unfortunately, we haven't uh, followed that with good regulatory policy since then. And we also haven't uh, really changed how we pay for nursing homes going back to uh, the original formation of the, of the program. We still pay on this per diem basis, and we off, often pay kind of below uh, the cost of, of delivering services in a lot of states. And so the roots of this problem are really uh, underfunding, uh, uh, you know, the, this, this um, uh, regulatory system that in many ways has gotten outdated. And then you add into that, we have Medicare now. Medicare is a very generous payer for short stay, but Medicaid still underpays. And so we have this 
kind of siloed nature of these two sides of mm. the of, of the operation um, that, that aren't very well coordinated. And once again, you'd never design a payment system where let's pay a very generous rate on the one side, uh, a less generous rate on the other, and then be forced to kind of uh set up this regulatory model that, that may or may not work and then the final issue that's happened over time is we've always had a lot of for-profit provision of care but over time we've had private equity we've had real estate investment trusts we've had a mm -hmm. lot of kind of uh different ownership arrangements and those have gotten more and more complicated over time that's led to uh lots of kind of uh questionable accounting on the on the part of, of some nursing homes and so uh it's been hard in recent years wayne to even diagnose what is the underpayment issue it, wow. you know we, we know payment is fragmented we know in many states we underpay but we also lack transparency to really follow the dollars to to, to where they're going and where they should be going to uh direct caregivers and so uh, we we ultimately have ended up with this fragmented system where we underpay uh we 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 have multiple payers not always working together very well we have a, a regulatory model that's somewhat outdated and we have and we have challenges following the money and so when when the pandemic hit and i wanted to kind of end where i started we we still have these big kind of uh i i would say kind of out of uh, outdated nursing homes back from the 60s and 70s two to a room uh packed you know the, the 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 long hallways we've all been in these nursing homes uh when when you know things spread it, it, it spread very quickly and we saw this over and over again uh and that's why I, I i called it this this perfect storm it was this underlying crisis of how we pay how we regulate uh how how we um uh make certain that that the dollars are accountable to to public payers those were all sort of long-standing crises but this this crisis that that uh, COVID created, we were really ill prepared. Given uh, just you know staff moving in and out of the building, asymptomatic spread, and just an inability. Given how we set up these these large um, you know hundred bed facilities where residents were were packed in very close together, it, it just uh, it, it became very challenging. And so both the, the, the long-standing crisis and the, the, the short-term crisis uh, definitely created a, a perfect storm. Hmm. A storm in which it appears that we were almost doomed to fail, um, which is, is, is I think what's concerning to everyone, including the New York Times uh, writer with regard to everything you've just talked about. Absolutely. Hmm. You know, let's take a little bit more of a, of a, of a deeper dive. So, um, as we were dwelling deeper into the pandemic in the United States, we're now, now we're in May 2020, you and Dr. Karen Maddox wrote an article for the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, entitled Post-Acute Care Preparedness for COVID-19, Thinking Ahead. So we're, we're kind of deep into the surge, thinking ahead, in which you gave a, a general overview, kind of a primer, so to speak, of post-acute care options, uh, functioning, um, and to further described, uh, as you did just just now that, you know, the facilities were really pop up valves, pop off valves, um, to help with hospital capacity. But you conclude that making changes in post acute delivery and policy could help contribute to having adequate capacity and capability in the coming weeks and months. 
So there was a lot of press and advocacy, not only from you, but, you know, folks that are now kind of fixtures in the post-acute and long-term care world. Mike Wasserman from California, Swadigal from Georgia, Carl Steinberg from um from California, Christian Bergman from Virginia, Chris Laxton from from uh, Maryland, you know, just to mention a few. Your mm-hmm. paper made suggestions like utilizing telemedicine. Uh, you know, as you reflect on this past year, and it's quite a reflection that I know um, is bears heavily on your mind. How did we do? If if you were to consider, you know, a SWOT analysis, so to speak, what turned out to be our strengths? our weaknesses above and beyond what you've already talked about, mm-hmm. our opportunities and our threats from the pandemic on our facilities. Sure. So I I, I try to offer kind of a, a nuanced answer to that because uh, how did we do? How did how did the members of, of this society do? I think they did amazing. And how did our direct caregivers do? They did amazing under the circumstances. How did we as a kind of a, a long-term care system, a, a nursing home system do? Uh, I think we did terrible, and I, I think we really failed on a lot of levels. And so, uh, I, I love the the analysis, you, the, the SWOT analysis. It's a it's a it's a good kind of um, paradigm to apply here because I, I I think we we uh, experienced you know the best of the best, and I, I I'm not just saying that. Um, I, I really believe our strengths have always in in post acute and long term care been our people. Uh, the medical directors, uh, the the clinicians, the direct caregivers, uh, the family members, all of the above, and and I, I think that uh, they, they were amazing over this this past year. You you just mentioned a few of the members, obviously at a high level, uh, really the the, the all stars there, Mike and Swati and Carl and, and Christian and Chris. What what a, what a group, and many other names obviously could be sure, added to sure, that, sure, and then. Sure. You know, in terms of just like all of the folks, uh, you know, down on down on the front lines, like that, that's that's always been our strength is, is our people. Uh, you know, those were the most powerful stories I heard of, of d- during the pandemic. Uh, they, they were they were truly amazing. You know, the, the, the weakness then, uh, Wayne, and, and this won't surprise you. Um, the, the real failure here, I think, was a policy failure. Mm-hmm. And. I, I, I've written a lot about this. I've talked. I've testified twice to, to Congress during this pandemic. I've been very direct that I think we we failed all of these, uh, you know, uh, uh, amazing uh, clinicians and family members and direct caregivers, and on and on and on um, with our policies. And we failed to provide them with the resources. Uh, we failed to get them personal protective equipment. We failed to get them rapid testing. Um, there were staffing shortages, uh, you, you name it, um, we experienced it. And, and I think we were too slow in our response. And uh, we also um, didn't provide enough in terms of resources. And so uh, this was a perfect storm of sorts. Like uh, this was always going to hit uh, nursing homes hard in this country, given the community spread. But I've, I've written a lot that it didn't have to be this way. And the main reason I say that is that we had an opportunity very early on to protect older adults and those that care for them. And we really failed them. And so what's the opportunity then? The opportunity is to, to take advantage, if you will, of this of this crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I obviously wish this had never happened. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I wish we could roll back and do a lot of things differently. But now that we're here, I think we have a lot of people's attention. And I think this is a real opportunity 
to advocate for smarter policies going forward. And you asked me in the prior question how we got here, and I outlined that sort of longstanding crisis. This is an opportunity to fix all that payment fragmentation, uh, underpayment, uh, accountability in terms of where the dollars flow, uh, an outdated regulatory model, all of these things, that those, those are the opportunities. The threat is obviously that we do nothing. And I, I, that's what, what sort of keeps me up nights, Wayne, is that we're just not going to have the political will. We're not gonna hold our, our politicians' feet to the fire. Once this pandemic ends, we know this country is gonna have a lot of needs. We're gonna have a, a lot of areas uh, that require resources and attention. Long-term care is one of those. We need to continue to advocate and, and continue to push for real reform. And I, I worry that if we all get back into our, um, you know, uh, typical stakeholders and, um, uh, you know, if everyone sort of goes back to their, their foxholes or, or doesn't really want to engage and, and come up with, with big reforms, then uh, policymakers are going to turn to other areas and we'll see kind of changes in education and changes in, you know, other parts of the economy and long-term care won't get that, that needed reform. So um, there's a lot of opportunity, whether it's post-acute, whether it's, it's, it's nursing home care, uh, to really kind of take on real reform. This is an opportunity, um, but, but the threat is real of, of, I'm afraid, doing nothing because I think there's such a, a, you know, a, a, a sort of status quo problem in long-term care. Uh, the fact that the, the the facilities look the same they did as they did in 1960s, the payment system hasn't hasn't changed much. You know, we we there, there's real opportunity. You mentioned telemedicine. There, there's lots of opportunity for innovation. And Karen and I talked about some of that in our in our JAMA piece, just on right. the post acute care side. Hmm. How can we think about just some short term innovations? There's no reason those have to be short term. We could really think about. Um, creative ways of of actually getting individuals the care they want in the home in the community. Um, there, there's there's real opportunities here if we take advantage of it. And now a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. We are so fortunate to be speaking with Dr. David Grabowski on healthcare policy, post-acute and long-term care, and COVID-19. Dr. Grabowski, a central motivation of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine has always been, what can we teach or discuss today 
that can be put into action by our, as I like to call them, our Joe Amdas in the trenches tomorrow. As we consider your, now we're in July, July 2020 GEMMA article with Dr. Vincent Moore entitled Nursing Home Care in Crisis in the Wake of COVID-19. You discuss the need for owners, payers, and clinicians to come together to provide resources and support to nursing homes. As we can see that this pandemic will come to a, a close, hopefully soon, devastation yep. aside, what do facilities need to do today and tomorrow, facilities now, in order to protect and care for their residents, support and grow their staff, which I know is a huge concern of yours, mm -hmm. and maintain financial and quality sustainability. As I think you've made very clear, if attention isn't paid now, you know, what's going to be the forecast for tomorrow? Yeah, um, if we don't invest now, we're, we're doomed to just repeat this over and over again. And when the next crisis uh, comes, we'll be in the, in the same position that, that we've always been in. And once again, we've been in a longstanding staffing crisis. We've been in a longstanding quality crisis in, in, in long-term care. So th this, this isn't, you know, yes, this was a short-term crisis and was incredibly devastating, as, as you mentioned, but um, the longstanding crisis has, has um, uh, long predated <laughs> uh, the, the, this pandemic. So, uh, you know, your, your question, what do facilities need to do today? And I, I, I think there's several things. Um, and and we, Vince and I, in that, that piece you mentioned in JAMA, talked about kind of owners and payers and clinicians coming together. And I think owners can be a part of the solution. They have to be a part of the solution. And I've been really pleased of late to see several uh, policy pr proposals being put forward by providers, actually. And this is, uh, that, that's part of being, uh, you know, that, that's being part of the solution. So ACA and uh, the American Healthcare Association, the For-Profit Nursing Home Association and Leading Age, the Nonprofit Association, put together a, uh, a plan. Is it perfect? Of course not. But is it a start? I, I, I think so. And, it, and it's great to have them at the table thinking about how do we begin to, to fix this? And I think where I would really push them is that I think they're very quick to acknowledge many of the buildings around the country don't have adequate staff and they don't feel um, as if they're resourced enough. And I think many of us that study this are willing to, to acknowledge that, but as long as they're willing to kind of open up their books to us. And so what I would encourage kind of facilities to do is be good partners here. Um, mm. Yes, we're willing to, to provide you with additional resources, but um, given you're asking us for more, we're going to ask more of you. And that more of you is, is showing us how you're spending the money, being accountable uh, to, to policymakers, to the, to the Medicaid program, to the Medicare program around how those dollars are, are being spent. Are they being spent on direct care? And I'll note, Wayne, several states are beginning to go down this path. California has some legislation, and I know members of, of this association were involved in, in, in that legislation. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's a policy in New Jersey. There's, there's, there's work emerging in, in New York State as well. Um, Mike Wasserman, who you mentioned earlier, myself and, and, and other colleagues, put together a health affairs blog several, several weeks ago that argued we need greater transparency. I, I, I would hope that 
nursing homes uh, and, and, and long-term care providers more generally would be on board for this. Um, the good providers have nothing to hide, obviously. And it's a good way of getting the, the, the bad actors out of the, the system because I, I really believe um, there are a lot of good operators in, in nursing homes, but they're far overshadowed by those, those bad actors. Yeah. And those, those bad actors are the ones that show up on the cover of the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And you know, <laughs> they're, they're the ones that yeah. Um, yeah. really drive a lot of the, the media here. And it's really unfortunate because I, I, we've all been in, in really good, well-intentioned you know, facilities that um, with, with, with uh, I think, uh, owners that, that really want to do right by the, the residents, but uh, are, are limited by, by resources. Those nursing homes, let, let, let's pay them more. And those that aren't, let's 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 work on ways of yeah. either driving those owners out of the system that that aren't that aren't sort of spending that those dollars correctly, or um, let's get them to spend those dollars correctly. So I, you know, we we have uh, far too much of that kind of you know fiscal games going on right now in the system. And um, I, 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 I I as you said, written a lot about. Uh, the need for kind of more support for staff and and kind of uh, you know putting minimum staffing standards and also um, you know potentially uh, minimum pay you know raising the the living wage all of that's going to take resources I believe but in order to do that there's so much suspicion on the part of advocates who should be advocating by the way for for more dollars but they're so worried about how those dollars are flowing currently that they're not willing to concede that these nursing homes should get a dollar more. Like that yeah. seems seems yeah. broken to me. Imagine you're a cancer advocate and you're saying, no, 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 no more money for cancer until you know. Um, that, that 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 always uh, puzzled me. But I, I I get where they're coming from. That yes, nursing homes, we we want to support you, but we want you to we want to know how we're spending this money. And so that's that, that's that's what I think they can do. They can kind of do a much better job of um, being transparent and helping police some of those. Uh, uh, bad apples. Mm. 15,000 nursing facilities in the country. Um, millions of, uh, of, of residents and patients traveling in and out of them. Of course, there are going to be some bad a- actors. But, you know, but I think we all need to understand that um, uh, at deep down, as you have said, I think that the majority really want to be home for these folks, want to make them feel safe and welcomed. And unfortunately, we have a star system that is not is not really advocating for facilities that may have had some bad luck, but are trying so hard to get back up there and be recognized for the value that they bring across. It's really, it gets to be a bit complicated, doesn't it? Absolutely. And you know, there was this big New York Times uh, article that many of your uh, oh yes, oh yes, <laughs> listeners, I'm maybe all too familiar with. It. Oh yes, yeah. I, I, you know that was uh, you know so I, I I don't disagree that there are data problems with the with the minimum data set, and I um I was a little surprised because I think the payroll based journal is audited, and I think that th- those data are a little bit better. But I think one of the big takeaways that 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 New York Times article sort of glanced over was that. Most of the five-star score is based on survey deficiencies, right. which are done by the. They're they're far from perfect, of course, right. but of course, um, that's that, you know, yes, the yes, the issues they raise were important, but they're it doesn't sort of bring down the the entire system. So, we found as others have that the five-star 
needs lots of improvement, better quality measures, more auditing of some of the measure. I, we, that, that could be a podcast into its, under itself. Mm. But I, I think to me, the, the, the big takeaway with, with, with Five Star is that it, it has, there, there is a signal there that, that um, and, and we know we need to work to make it better. But um, I, I, I hope that we'll, rather than, you know, trashing it or, or, or thinking that it's, it's valueless, that, that wasn't my takeaway at all from the New York Times article. I, I, I think there was some sensationalism there around kind of some of the measures, but I, I think overall that there, there actually is a, is a, a true signal there. And I think at the end of the day, that's why we all say thank goodness for Dr. Grabowski. Um, <laughs> so um, Dr. Grabowski, as has become customary in the time that we have remaining, I typically like to be a little provocative with my guests, but out of my deep respect for you, I'm not going to be too much. Um, right now, right now, I'm thinking about two things. I'm thinking about society past president, uh, Dr. Araf Nazir, during the recent society uh, annual meeting, March of, uh, of, of 21. And, uh, and a year before, your March 2020 JAMA article with Dr. Michael Barnett entitled, Nursing Homes are Ground Zero for COVID-19 Pandemic. Dr. Nazir taught a number of a number of times during the annual society meeting that um, leaders needed to use this time to collaborate with those who might have been competitors in the past in the skilled nursing environment. As you've said, need to innovate new approaches to care and support more than ever the value that skilled nursing facilities can and will bring to their patients and residents and the healthcare continuum. And you discussed how the evolving pandemic presented an important case study of infection control for the frailest individuals in the United States healthcare system. You have reached out to the broadest audience, the American Medical Association, um, 225,000 providers, to help plead the case, truly, of the value in skilled nursing facility care. Has all of this effort made a difference? How do we, as you write about, I think it's a conclusion in this article, how do we fortify the most vulnerable link so that our response to any adversity in the skilled nursing facility will be strong? Yeah, it's, this is a great question to end on because it, it, it really gets to the kind of the, the, the core of this of like, you know, how how have we made a difference, and uh, if so, why not? And I, uh, once again, I'm going to offer sort of a, a nuanced answer. I I don't think, once again, as a system, we did very well in protecting older adults and their caregivers. Uh, I uh, unfortunately, a lot of what Michael and I wrote in that piece over a year ago now, which is mind blowing. Mm -hmm. uh, I I don't know that that we actually, you know, that the AMA and others listened to us uh, in, in terms of a lot of the steps that we have outlined. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's true, you know, uh, of a lot of us that have been sort of saying this very, from very early on, you need to pay attention to nursing homes and, and you need to uh, really um, uh, focus your resources on this group of uh, caregivers and residents or things are going to end really badly. 
And unfortunately, we didn't do that and, and things have um, gone very badly. On the other hand, you know, has all of this made a, a difference? I, what I have found, and Wayne, I, I, you know, you, you may be having a similar kind of experience, but I feel like for the, for the first time, whether it's clinicians like those in the AMA, whether it's hospital leaders, whether it's healthcare plans, whether it's other stakeholders, whether it's popular media, I, we've never had more attention on the area that we've been working in for, for many, many years now. And there, there's, I think, a, a, a good part of that in that this is an opportunity to educate folks. And I, I feel like we're at that first stage of educating them in, in, in terms of who, who receives care here, what are their needs, what was the problem? And I, 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 I think the, the appetite right now for um, information about, about this area, uh, the learning that's happening has been great. Obviously, we need to take that learning and that, that opportunity and translate it into, into action. And that's really that, that last question you asked about fortifying the most vulnerable link. That's where, uh, once again, and I, I think I said this earlier, hmm. we, we have this opportunity right now to, to, to really move forward with some, some big reforms. The Biden administration is putting a lot of dollars into home and community-based care. That's great. That's, that's a really important part of the kind of the, the uh, long-term care system and should be expanded and, and fortified. But we also need to fortify nursing homes. And maybe the last point I'll make here is that we oftentimes set up this false dichotomy that we can either invest in home-based services or we can invest in facility-based services. I find that to be a, a false dichotomy in that we need to do both. We're always going to have some individuals uh, that need services in a facility-based setting. We're going to have a lot of individuals, most individuals, hopefully, that can be safely cared for in the home. And that's where they want services. And that's great. We should expand and uh, ensure that individuals have those services. But for those individuals who need to be in, in uh, facility-based care for different reasons, whether it's health-related, social uh, economic, uh, you know, family support, resources, whatever it may be, let's make that a much better environment. And whether that's, you know, knocking down some of these old institutional nursing homes and, and building smaller home models, let's encourage models that are integrated with, with clinical services where uh, there's an engaged medical director, uh, there's sufficient direct caregivers, uh, residents have autonomy, their families are engaged, all of these things can happen and uh, will happen with, with further investment. That, that's that's how, we, how we fortify this, this uh, set of services for our, for our most vulnerable individuals. Um, I, I think we're starting down that path, um, but um, we're far from there and we have, we have a lot of work left to do. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop on that point. I, 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 I do think we've made a difference, but uh, just uh, just the beginning of a difference. We have a, we have a lot of work left to do. We have been privileged to speak with and learn from Harvard Medical School Professor of Health Policy Research, Dr. David Grabowski. Um, we have just scratched the surface of Dr. David Grabowski. I would urge uh, our listeners to take a deeper look at. Um, at tapings and uh, Dr. Grabowski's writing and tell two people and have them tell two people and so on and so on. 
because um, I think that uh, Dr. Grabowski and people like him are going to change the world. Dr. Grabowski, thank you very much for spending um, this wonderful time with us on And On The Go. Thank you so much, Wayne. It was a great discussion. References for this podcast can be found at paltc.org backslash podcast. Until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for this innovation podcast that we call AMDA on the go. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex.paltc.org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.